You probably remember him for this. In three seconds, two, one, it's all over. Jens Vogt is beating the world hour record. Or for this. I said, yeah, and I just um, tell my buddy, hey, shut up, Lex. And but you probably never forget about him because of this. Or I could ask who tells the worst jokes. Jens tells Come the worst on. jokes. Stop pointing at me again. I saw that coming from miles away. Yes, people, keep yourself tight. The guest of today on the broom wagon is Jens Voigt. <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome to Broom Wagon. You will not get there on a road bike. Even if today we're going to talk about road cycling, I mean, I'm so excited. It was such an amazing chat that we had with Jens Voigt. I mean, it was great. A couple of days before the tour to start, we talked about tour, we talked about a lot of things. I have to say thank you, first of all, to the Silka people, so the great people behind Silka, and as well to the great people behind Two Tones Amsterdam, that put me in contact with Jens. I was chasing him forever, but now I got the opportunity to chat with him, chat with him about cycling in general, chat with him about some specific technology things, talking about anecdotes and other stuff. I loved it. I think that I would need to catch up with Jens more often. I'm just sad that when I was living in Berlin, I didn't see him in person ever. Maybe go out for a run or a ride with him at Teufelsberg. It's gonna happen. It's gonna happen again. I actually also got a promise from him. You're gonna listen to that later for sure. For now, I have to say thank you to listen to this episode. Remember, you can subscribe, share, do whatever you want with this episode and with the full podcast with your application, the application where you are listening to this podcast. And remember as well that down here there is a link and you can drop a couple of coins on me with the coffee link. Your support is really good because keeps my podcast independent and myself also well fed. And I have to say thank you as well to Komoot, who is supporting this podcast now for two seasons. Thanks a lot. A lot of great adventure are coming there. I was just checking on their uh, Instagram yesterday and I saw that those amazing people that were pretty often in this podcast as well uh, last year year, took out directly for Komoot a great new track. The name of it, I mean, something like a trail that Zillestair, I hope that I would pronounce it correct, Zillertal, here it is, the Zillertal Trail in the Alps between Italy and Austria. Everything supported by Komoot. And to make this happen, they put together an amazing bunch of people. There was Belen, there was Tristan, there was um, Max from Grav Grav, were really a lot of super nice people. Of course, there was Gabi and there was Ali. Wow, I actually, next time, I hope I can join them for that. Head to Komoot, and if you still have not registered to their account, komoot.com slash G like Greenland, and then put the code BROOM. In this way, you can have another extra region for having all the potential of Komoot directly on your phone for another region. That's super great. What else? Yes, remember that I support uh, this, um, with this podcast, I support a great cause by Kigis, and is the great charity from Berlin that teaches women refugees to learn how to ride a bike as a practical and political statement. Keep an eye on them and also down in the description, you will find the link. I think all the homekeeping, housekeeping, all the housekeeping part is done. We need to talk with Jens.
Well, hello everybody, it has been a while, I've been not talking with you, but actually we are coming back with fireworks, because I'm here today with Jens Voigt. How are you doing, man? I am pretty good, actually, excited to go to the Tour de France, commentating on it, and I expect uh, some very exciting, maybe even better to say dramatic, first week. Let's straight kick into that, Jens. So you are going to the Tour de France, basically tomorrow is going to be the first day and you are driving directly to Munich because of your job, actually, your task at Eurosport, because you are going to commentating that. What do you see for the future of Tour de France? How do you feel today is good today? I mean, the next three weeks are going to be, what do you see around? Well, first of all, a question people might have, general classification. I'm sorry to say it, but I don't see anybody else but Tadej Pogacar. He is young, he's fit, he's healthy, he's strong. He hardly ever makes tactical mistakes. Uh, he doesn't crash often. Um, he's good in downhills, he's good uphills. Um, he can handle the heat, he's okay in time trialing. So if he doesn't do a major tactical mistake, or if he doesn't crash, I don't see anybody able to beat him, to be honest. Uh, I mean... I'm sure and I'm hoping it will be a fantastic and exciting tour. But if you ask me in my um, in my job as a as a commentator or as a cycling expert, mm -hmm. that's my answer. Okay, 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 okay. I mean, makes a lot of sense. But actually, there are a lot of content. I mean, general classification. There are a lot of contenders out there. I mean, we're talking about. The, Jum the Jumbo Visma, that is pretty strong. We're talking about, I mean, these two ones are really good. Probably we're just limiting it to those two. I mean, Ineos Grenadier, I love them. Maybe Martinez can do something. But you still believe that Tadej can only be better. Poggy can only be the, the only person that can lose the Tour de France only because something happens, right? Yes, absolutely. I uh, see... I do love Primoz Roglic. What a fantastic buyer he is. What a great person he is, yeah. from what I know. But at his age, it is a success if you are as good as the year before. You mm. don't get better anymore at that age, in the middle of 30. Um, Tadej Pogacar is 23. You still get not only one year older, you get better and stronger mm. at that age. So he uh, did reinforce his team. He got uh, more climbers around him. So, yeah, the team is strong. He is strong. You know, he just won a race uh, back home. And um, a fact that uh, probably not too many people actually realize, Team Ineos Grenadiers has never, ever been able to beat Tadej Pogacar when he said, I want to win. They might have beaten him at some races where he is just for training. But at races, he, he takes serious. Since Tadej Pogacar is professional, none of Team Ineos was able to beat him. So, you know, it's like it's almost like he is their uh, de de curse. Um, so, I, I guess Roglic will be close, maybe um, Vingegaard. And um, my little dark horse actually is Vlasov. Absolutely. I know what you mean. Super strong rider. Yeah. I saw yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. I saw him at the. Um... It was Giro d'Italia under 23. We're talking about probably 2017, stuff like this. And it really impressed me there. I mean, he's a super strong and talented rider. Probably as the 
I mean, probably has the tendency to crash too much, but don't say these things together with Roglic because that's another guy that crashes too much. Indeed, indeed. Uh, I remember even, uh, I believe it was last year when they um, asked Wout van Aert, hey Wout, what does it take to beat Pugacha? And Wout, you know, after the race and at the finish line, still cooking and, and, you know, hot from the race, he had one of these honest moments and he went, well, it would help if we would stop crashing. Damn it. That year when he lost the when he lost Tony Martin in an earlier crash, uh Roglic crashed. Uh, I said, look, it, it would really help if you just stop crashing. You know? No. No, and at least everybody is healthy and in one piece. You know, if you already beat up before the mountain because you crashed once or twice, that takes a lot of energy. I can tell you from my own experience, it Absolutely. takes a lot of energy out of you. And the Tour de France. It's not like a tiny little race around a little marketplace in your hometown, you know. It is the biggest and hardest race. And if you miss just 2%, it's a huge difference in the Tour de France. 2%, you would go, like you and me, I don't know if I'm at 100% or 95, 91, because, hey, driving the kids to school on a bike, I can still do it. But in the Tour de France, 2%, it's an eternity of, of space, of gap, you know. So, yeah. Not crashing is the key, which brings us back to the first week, which will be mm -hmm. pretty mad. Especially Saturday with this super long bridge with a lot of wind year round. There is going to be some fun, I think. I drove it. I had an event in Denmark and I drove that with the car. And um, I had to hang on to the steering wheel in the car. And we're talking like, you know, 1,500 kilos of steel and metal. And I still had to hang on to the car. I mean, it wasn't blowing me off the bridge, but I had to hang on, hold on to the steering wheel. And to give you uh, um, and um, the listeners, uh, give them uh, uh, like a really a clear vision. The bridge has two lanes, right? One in and out. Okay. So it's three lanes on each side of the bridge. They're going to close the entire bridge. And let's say the wind comes from the right side. They will have the peloton crossing the bridge on the right side where the wind comes from, now you would go, huh, why would he do that? Because, now listen to that, Danish authorities went, well, if they drive on the right side and the wind comes from the right side, if then a bike rider gets blown over the safety barrier, he falls on the road on the other side instead of falling into the water. So they actually consider it to be a possibility that a bike rider, the wind is that strong, that a bike rider, maybe one or two or three, might either get involved in a crash fly over the safety barrier or simply get blown over the safety barrier. So, yeah, it, it will be dramatic. And I hate to say it, I probably, I hate to say it, but I probably expect three, four, five, six broken bones, collarbones, people have to go home. And probably at least two GC contenders, they will lose a minute or more. Uh, I'm not sure if teams uh, by now, they should know. But the, the, the viewers, the listeners, the spectators, I don't know if they know how dramatic and important it will be. Plus, already to get to the bridge, they will do like a zigzag course along the coastline. So already there is crosswinds guaranteed. And Denmark, once every 100 years, they have a day without wind. Once every hundred years, Absolutely. that's very likely not the day of the Tour de France. So it, it will be dramatic. Um, plus, 
A few days later, they have a stage that finishes in Arenberg, right in front of the heavy pavé section. There's 11 sections of pavé. They will be hard. But I had a chance to talk uh, to Cedric Vasseur, who's a team manager of uh, Cofidis and an old teammate of mine some phew, 25 years back. <laughs> yeah. um, and he said, Jens, the 20 miles or 30 kilometers going into the first pavé, they will be so crucial. Small roads, these little stony walls on the side of the road, you know, where the farmers, they collect the stones on their fields, throw them to the side of the road, they build these little, little walls along the road. Tiny little villages, left, right, up and down, a little bit of wind, a little bit of forest. He goes, positioning, positioning, positioning will be so crucial. Um, so there's another stage where we probably might see a lot of stress, maybe crashes, and GC riders able to gain time or to lose time. And really, people, these two stages, they are as close as it gets in these modern day to the old Roman Empire gladiators. Honestly, in these two stages, we are, I swear, one step only away from saying they go there for life and death. It will be dramatic and it will be spectacular for us to watch and to commentate. But for the riders and teams, it's a nightmare. I mean, look, we all love the sport. It's a fantastic sport. We do it with passion. But it's also a job and a business. Yeah. So let's take, for example, Team Ineos Grenadiers. They probably have salaries worth of 10 million euros at the start line. So they have a 10 million euro investment at the start. And for sure, they want to protect that investment. And if you lose a rider like Garen Thomas or, uh, you know, Adam Yates, you lose a $2 million investment. Bang, just like that. So also for the team managers, it is super stressful to go through these days, if possible, un uns unscathed. Un 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 unscathed? Is that what you say? Yeah. So, um, yeah, the, the, these two days will be super dramatic. And then stage seven already, next Friday, it's the Planche de Belfie. I can't wait for and, it. It's a gravel ride. <laughs> and it is super hard. Yeah. The entire climb, plus the edit, the steep section at the end. And as always, the GC containers, they want to make their point on the first serious mountain day. They want to, you know, mark their claim, you know, and go, hey, this is my spot. This is my place. I'm the one you need to beat. So it will be an open battle for the GC riders. I would almost go after day seven, Planche de Belfie. Um, we could almost determine almost the podium. There, there, there probably will be only five or six riders left. They are still in touch with the podium. Wow. The rest will be lost, have, would have lost time before, maybe crashed or lost time on that day. So, um, yeah, it's it's a fantastic first week. A lot of stress for the riders. Every day there is a bridge, a little tiny vicious hilltop finish, pavé sections. There are always something special. Um, so, yes, the riders have to be alert Absolutely. every single day. Absolutely. They can't wait for the second rest day, I guess. Absolutely. No, no, no. Definitely, no. I mean, I will definitely see it like you do because... I mean, this year is quite tough and there's not an easy day at all. Talking about easy days, I mean, I remember that actually when I was a kid, uh, 
few years ago, when probably you were riding as well the Tour de France already, that there were a lot of the first stages that were really something like flat, pancake flat stages for sprinters and stuff. Things changed a bit over there. And that's why probably, let's say, the parterre de roi of the sprinter is not as shiny as before now at the Tour de France. Of course, we can kick on into this conversation because I want to know also a tiny bit of your feeling on the Cavendish affair. What do you think about actually the evolution of the Tour de France and the sprinter from the sprinter angle? Um, correct. We don't have uh, these typical first week anymore. Normally, first week was for the GC riders to prepare, they would come to the race with one or two kilos too much and then burn them off in the first week. Um, and the sprinters would basically win every single day for the first week. Uh, probably the, the fans complained about it or the, the ratings in TV dropped because people went, look, it doesn't work. Back then also, nobody attacked for the first hour. I mean, even in my first Tour de France, uh, second or third stage, and we were riding two by two and talking for about 50 kilometers. And I went to Chris Bobman. Hey, Chris, I, I feel like I want to go. Can I go now? Yeah, yeah, we passed the 50 kilometer sign. Yeah, I believe it's officially allowed to attack. And then I attacked. Three or four followed me, and nobody really wanted to chase. Um, and we made it to the finish line. That, that doesn't happen anymore. The race is so much more controlled. The level of the riders is so much more, is so much closer, you know. Um, so, uh, uh, um, <clears throat> I mean, back in the days when you sometimes you would have these um, epic attacks from GC riders, that doesn't work anymore. I mean, if we take Tadej Pogacar, for example, and he decides in a mountain stage to attack at kilometer 20, and he tries to do 150 meters alone. Tade Pogacar, the biggest, strongest rider in the world, if he attacks with 150 kilometers to go alone, people would be just laughing. They would be laughing. They go, just let him out there. He's going to hang high and dry and he's going to die. He would get the domestics and they would slowly reel him back in. It wouldn't even need to take the GC riders to chase him. Different in the last 20 kilometers. But the level is so much closer and higher um, that number two and three in the team is almost as strong as the leader. And that's why the gaps are so much smaller. And my first to the France, they told me, hey, listen, normally position three in the GC is about five to eight minutes down. Top 10 is 30 minutes down. With 30 minutes uh, um, um, uh, time gap to the leader, you hardly make a top 50 these days. Yeah. You know? So it, everything has become a lot closer. That's why there's more stress. I mean, before, if, if you know, a team goes uh, in a crosswinds, bang, it's all split up. Now, if it's only three or four riders, everybody's just laughing and sitting there. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. They try the crosswind. But it takes maybe two teams and two entire teams to work together to split it up. Yeah. Everybody's just so fit and so strong, you know? Yeah. And and the way the tour is designed this year, um, as a GC rider, you need to be uh, at almost at 100% on day one. The TT is important. The bridge is important. The next day, it's up and down uh, in Denmark. It's probably for the sprinters, but it's not a present and it's not guaranteed for yeah. the sprinters. So every day, you got to be ready. 
And you can't come to the tour with two kilograms of overweight. You have to be sharp and ready at the start. And that changed over the last 20 years quite dramatically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. I can definitely see this change over and over. And actually, actually, maybe a question that I want to ask you. I mean, you saw the evolution of it. Now we're going to talk also a bit about your career and everything, but you saw the evolution of it. How much modern training and modern science together with training and as well nutrition and everything and power meters changed the game? They did change the game. <clears throat> the speed of the Tour de France goes almost every year or steadily a little higher or at least stays the same. I mean, uh, when I started, it was unheard of to finish the Tour de France with 40 kilometers an hour average. Now it's just standard. It's just normal. Better aerodynamics, the, the, the deep rims, you know, the, the, the carbon, the fast wheels, um, aerodynamic frames. Everybody races in a skin suit, you know, not in a jersey anymore, but in a skin suit with pockets uh, on the rear for, for, the, for the food. And they got aero helmets and so on. <clears throat> so they already go faster without pushing more watts because equipment is better. Uh, then, there, uh, when, when I started, well, um, no, uh, we, we had um, back then uh, the Finnish company, Polar, heart rate watches. They were the leader of the market. They were basically every team had a Polar fitness watch or a Polar uh, heart rate monitor. Um, but before that, they basically the coach would go, "Hey, if it was a hard training, it's a good training. Mm -hmm. That's it. That that was all the science. Go out, hurt yourself, and it was good training. Then we had the heart rate watcher, so we would do okay. We do five minutes at this heart rate. We would do eight minutes at this heart rate, and so on. So training become became more specific. Then team started with the kitchen truck, you know, to have the own cook. Not only is the food quality guaranteed." But also the timing. Sometimes the teams arrive at, at eight, sometimes at nine, sometimes at seven at the hotel. So you can call the cook an hour ahead. Hey, the bus is on the way. We're going to be there in an hour. The rider's going to be hungry. Precisely 7.25 p.m. We want food on the table, you know, and then the food is there. If you go to normal restaurant, you say, hey, we be at eight on the table. Then they start cooking at eight and uh, talk to you. Hey, what do you want? No. I don't want to sit yet at eight. I want to eat at eight. And that's a big difference. So buses came in. Then uh, we had all these uh, training tools, um, uh, uh, peak, peak coaching or what's the name? Training peaks. Training peaks, of course. Training yes, peaks. Training peaks. <laughs> so then you would load your SRM files or your Garmin files, training peaks. The coach could look at it. The entire team, the entire world could look at it. First, it was more about the race data. Then he looked at your training. So basically, um, I'm not saying it was better back then or worse or worse or better now. It is different. But nowadays, sometimes a rider just needs to be a strong muscle. They tell you what to eat. I mean, I have heard of teams. They send you a box with food. So you eat exactly that food. They know your weight. They know your fat percentage. They know your training efforts, how much calories you burned. So they will send you a box. You eat exactly this, not more, not less. Um, and uh, you would send in your files and, and whatever, your body weight and all that. So um, you almost the uh, see-through athlete, you know? And I, I don't know if, if I would like it. And maybe I'm too old for all that. I'm too old-fashioned, so I think I just got out, got out of time. Maybe the last dinosaur left would be um, 
Uh, um, oh, I'm just a block, the Belgian rider for the breakaways, Team Lotto Sudal. Oh, uh, what's his name? Uh, no, I'm sorry. I'm ah, uh, Lauren Stendam. Thomas de Gant. Yeah, Lauren Stendam is on the Thomas de Gant. Thomas yeah. de Gant. You know, he's the last dinosaur who goes, hey, I attack after feelings and I train after feeling and guts. Um, so we're, we're dinosaurs. Uh, but they go faster, they earn more money. But um, a total control by the team. Uh, I mean, you know, I, I'm a father of six children. If my kids go, um, Daddy, want me to go for ice cream? Then I would go, um, yeah, but I can only drink a glass of water because they would see at my files that I had ice cream and I had too much calorie intake. So not sure if I like it, but the riders go faster. There's more money. The teams are better. And every rider is fit and healthy. I'm curious to see if they have 15 or 20 years of a career like I had, or if they are burned out because mentally it's it's draining. You know, you constantly think about the sport, your diet, your core muscle training, your stretching, uh, you know, sending in the files and all that. Um, so I believe mentally it's it's more draining than before. Absolutely. Let's talk about that because I wanted to start talking about your career and everything, even if I loved actually the Thomas DeGant example that you did. I actually interviewed as well Swain Tuft. And they were really the riders, and they're still, I talk with Sven Tuft, actually, and they were the riders that actually they are going for training, not only repeating the same meal over an eel, so over, over and over for intervals, but they were also going out for bikepacking. It's super famous, actually, Tim Valens and uh, Thomas de Gant being out for bikepacking, Sven Tuft, same thing, and it's super lovely. But going into training and career, I will start from here. And I want to ask you, you basically, as an athlete, were born in the East Germany. We talked already about that. How was a training at that time? Because we all know that was actually kind of tough, at least, I think, being an athlete in that period. Oh, yes. So, see, I'm yeah, from former East Germany, and um, we had quite a sophisticated team to uh, discover talent, to find talent. So um, some of my data from uh, schools, physical ed education would be sent to university in uh, Leipzig. And then they would analyze the data and go, um, yeah, I believe he is, in my case, 100% for endurance sport. So he could be a middle to long distance runner or cyclist. I tried soccer. I was terrible at it. My, my eye-foot coordination is just terrible. I couldn't hit the goal if my life depends on it. Okay. But I guess you cannot you cannot be good at everything, right? Absolutely. I could outrun everyone, but uh, the, the, the dribbling and all that uh, wasn't mine. Um, so then there was only cycling left in my little hometown. 3,000 people lived there. So I, I tried um, cycling. Um, the local cycling team came to present themselves at the school. You know, East Germany sport and school all worked together. And he said, hey, um, who is going to, uh, you know, come to our training this afternoon and sign up for the team, gets a brand new bike, because the government paid for all the, the equipment. And I was 10 years old, and my, peop my people, my parents were classic, typical working class. We didn't even have a car back then. So dad was a blacksmith all his life. Um, he, he, and he had a hard life. You know, he still had... Um, the burn marks on his arms when he was uh, welding, you know, yeah. overhead, 
the liquid metal dropped into the sleeves of his uniform. So he still had some burn marks here from the liquid metal dropping down while he was working overhead. So he had a hard life. Um, and it was the first item that was only for myself. You know, before every bike I had been given by my older brother and I had to give it to my younger sister. So that bike was just freedom and independence for me. You know, yeah. I could suddenly go and visit my friends uh, and I wouldn't have to take a bus or drive or ask somebody to drive me. So the first bike was just freedom and independence to me. Then I trained for a few weeks and won my first race. And of course, I was hooked. So then I qualified uh, for the sports school system at the age of uh, 13. We had to go through certain tests, like um, 10 different things. Once in, I believe, um, in March, then in uh, June, and then in August again. Always the same test. We would start with 150 kids. They would keep 50 kids for the second test. They would keep 30 kids for the last test. And then 15 of them would go to school. To the sports school so it was a tough selection um process and it did were as i said quite sophisticated because i was a late developer so um when we had the testing my age was 13 but my biological age was 12. Mm -hmm. so in order to gain the same points like other guys i had to do less times less points because I was biologically younger. I mean, at uh, at thirteen, the first guys they already had to shave their face. Of you know, course. they were you know they were like a hair taller than me. And I'm like, holy smokes, you know. So they had to go quite faster than me to gain the same points. So it was a fair system. Um, and then I went to Berlin, about two hundred miles away from my parents' place, three hundred kilometers. Um, and then you, we lived at the dorms. They had a big building at the dorms, uh, two entrances, one for the girls, one for the boys. Classic. If you want to go go and see somebody outside, you would have to put your name down and tell, you know, the um, the person in charge there um, who you want to see and, and so on. Um, and oh, as you can imagine, you show up at the, at the dorms and you're the new kid, uh, the young kid from the countryside. So the older ones go, hey, kid. Go and wash my bike. Mm. And then he had two options. One option, you want to have an easy day, and you go, okay, I go and wash the bike. The second option, you would say no. The second you said no, you would have to get your fists up to defend yourself because he would beat you up, or he would at least try to beat you up. There was no democratic discussion. Okay. You know? Yeah. It was a survival of the fittest, like in the book of Darwin, mm -hmm. you know? And, um, yeah, after a few days or weeks, you try to sell your skin as expensive as possible. Then you would give up and you go, okay, ah, the, the guy is trouble. Just uh, just leave him alone. But it is, it's a tough process. We lost the first two kids. Um, after a month, you went, F oh, this. I'm going to go home. Yeah. And then at the Christmas holidays, um, you know, three months, school starts in September. In December, we had Christmas holidays. Two more of the kids wouldn't come back. So uh, within the first three or four months, we lost four of the 15. So, um, yeah, it, it, it was tough. My wife sometimes laughs at me. She goes, I think your character still suffers from these times. Your character still, still meant and bent from these days, she goes. It wasn't good for you, she says. At what age you turned pro? Um, uh, my first professional, professional contract was with a smaller team, um, half Australian, half from the Czech Republic. 
in 97. It was called ZVVZ Giant. Okay. Yes. Um, so that was in 97. I was 26. And then at the age of 27, I then had a chance to sign with a bigger team. Back then it was again, which then turned to the Credit Agricole. So I became teammates with Frederick Monkasang, um, Eros Poli, or um, Chris Boardman. Chris Boardman was your teammate. Mm -hmm. uh, can we say, and then we're going to touch base also this conversation later, later, that was exactly Chris Boardman putting in your head the bug of the word Hauer. I mean, how do you call it? World Hour Record, yeah. Uh, yes, indeed. Because he was, <laughs> back then, he was the World Hour Record holder. Yeah. And uh, since we were friends, I had a chance to go and visit him at his last event, the Hour Record, in Eddie Merckx style, with Eddie Merckx, the, the old classic bike. And he did that. And i like, wow, that is a pretty fantastic way to say goodbye. So, um, yes. Yeah. I also like Chris. He once, he told me, hey, listen, Jens. In a race, it's always better to be at the giving end of pain than to be on the receiving end of the pain. And it is so true. Yeah, it is true. so true. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's absolutely true. <laughs> and then I was from East Germany, and back then when I joined um, the team, um, it was, well, eight years already, or, well, almost 10 years when the wall came down, but the memory was fresher. And I remember Chris Boardman, you know, British, uh, British sense of humor. He used to say, hey, Jens, listen, I believe socialism, communism is a good idea, but unfortunately, it involves human beings. And so <laughs> it has to turn to shit. That is so true. It makes it's, so yeah. much sense. I mean, as idea, it it's awesome. Then you yeah. put actually everything yeah. into practice. I have a lot of yeah. friends actually that are coming. For example, I have a couple of super good friends of mine. They're from Slovakia. And they tell me exactly the same thing. As concept, why not? Then you have to live there. And living there is not probably... Yeah. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Definitely. No, that's uh, super great. So, yeah. Turning pro at 26. And then you see these days the best cyclist ever. I mean, the best cyclist at least of this period that is already pro. He already won to Tour de France and he's 23 years old. How do you think you can balance that? How do you see this kind of new trend of turning pro earlier and earlier in your career? You said that probably you have to be careful there because actually you can burn out yourself pretty quick. I mean, I don't want to really point fingers there, but Egan Bernal, okay, he had a super horrible crash this year, but before that he was suffering a lot for the back pain. The, we have some examples of really, really good rider turning pro super early, but not keeping the pace of it because it's stressful for your body, for your head. What's your take on that? It goes even further these days. I mean, look at Ken Simmons. He didn't even went to under 23. He went from juniors overlapping or just passing the entire under 23 program and went straight professional. There's two or three of them out there. So yes, it is super early, but I believe there's more science involved. Um, these kids already train as juniors, quite intelligent, so I guess they, they, they are ready. I mean, in, in a podcast once, um, um, Bobby, Juliet and me, we have we had Thomas again as a guest. And we, us three, I mean, Thomas is younger than us, but we all raced together. Yeah. And we were looking, we were looking at Matthew van der Poel and Pugaccia. And we went, look, maybe we overtrained our entire career. Maybe we trained too long, too many hours, too many miles. 
Because to me, I'm blown away that Wout van Aert, Matthew van der Poel, the entire winter, the race for one hour and one lap, cycle cross, one mm -hmm. hour, one lap. And then it takes him a month, and he both be first and second at one of the longest and toughest classics in the season, the Amstel Gold Race. And he be one once or second or third, there you go, how did he do this? The entire winter, the race for one hour, and a month later, you go, oh yeah, I can do seven hours of racing. Unbelievable. So maybe they're just better than us, or maybe they, they better prepare, they train better. The entire package, you know, equipment, nutrition, the mm -hmm. coaching, um, so, so maybe it all uh, comes together, but you're right. They sometimes seem to struggle to, to uh, keep it constant. And earlier this year, I already said, I expect at least one or two of the miracle kids or the super talents to struggle a little, because if you look at, la if we look at last year, um, about von art, uh, does a super strong tour. Matthew van der Poel does the tour. They do the Olympics. They do cross world. They, they do mountain bike world cups. They go to uh, the road world championships straight to the cyclocross season. And I mean, hey, they were great at all of it, right? Pitcock becoming Olympic champion. Wout van Aert winning tour stages. Matthew van der Poel, great in the tour. Um, you know, they were also good at the Olympics, great at cyclocross. How long can a body keep that up to jump from... Tour de France uh, to cycle cross to mountain biking. Eventually, your body's going to go, hey, listen, I can't do this anymore. I'm one body and I cannot do three sports at the same time year after year. So if you burn the candle on both ends, it gives wonderful bright light. But eventually, the two flames meet in the middle and the candle is burned off and then it's darkness. So I hope the kids learned the lesson because. Every every one of them struggled a little bit. You know, Pitcock was out for a while. Matthew Van der Poel was out for a while. So maybe they learned the lesson. So instead of being like 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 a shooting star, you turn everybody's head and leave people in awe. But the shooting star lasts like what three or four seconds on the sky. Absolutely. I mean, we remember it. We remember it. It's spectacular. And not everybody wants a slow, glowing long-living star, some people go, no, I want to be a shooting star. I want to impress people. I want to blow them away and I want to be gone. So it depends what they want. But doing all three sports in the same season for several years, I strongly believe it's too much for your body to ask for. And also for your mind. I mean, I don't want to also again here point my finger and stuff but at the end we all remember Matthew van der Poel crushing in that drop that was there since the beginning at the Olympics right I truly believe that this was probably something like I don't know I mean for sure a misconsidering thing that comes probably for pressure of course and getting tiring and we have a lot of other riders that are out there and actually struggling with mental health Without going so far away, Tondo Moulin, after a bit of, I mean, a bit of a period of depression, getting back to race and suffering for the same thing and now retiring this year. So probably also this one is the thing. It's not only a body thing that for sure you have to put in a lot of pressure, whatever, but as long as you're training correctly, it's okay. You need to train your mind as well. True. And also uh, these days with all the um, technology, mm. social media, the riders are almost never, ever alone. You know, it's to the fronts. Then you will have interviews after. Then your own press officer wants a statement. 
then maybe you agreed somewhere to do a daily little video blog. So there's another 10, 15 minutes of video recording you do yourself. Uh, the team manager wants to talk to you. Then maybe sponsor obligations. There's just so many things going on. And then writers spend time on social media to see, oh, what did that team say? What did this writer put on Twitter and on Instagram? So I, I believe writers probably should drop the phone at least maybe two hours. Let's say from seven to nine at night, you should just drop the phone um, and, uh, um, you know, eat with the team. I mean, I know for sure that phones are banned from team dinners, uh, but maybe an, an hour afterwards, uh, back then, I'm not saying it's better or worse again. I just say it was different. You know, everybody would be just sitting at the hotel lobby. You know, the Italians with Cipollini would be there talking, us French guys with Kragikol. Then, uh, you know, uh, maybe uh, another team would be there and we'll be just sitting there and talking, you know, having like a little decaffeinato, um, you know, to finish the day. And every now and then a journalist would come and said, hey, can I sit with you guys? Yes, yeah, sit and have a few questions. Nowadays, to get an interview, it's a two-week process. You got to go to the press officer. You basically got to go on your knees to beg the people to have an interview. The press officer will be standing next to you, recording what you ask and making sure the writer answers correctly. Things were easier back then, and you had more mental freedom. You had moments where you could free your mind. And these days, you always um, um, got to be um, alert. I mean, it goes really quite far. If you have you ever seen a soccer game lately, if yeah. people talk, they hold the hand like that so yeah. that lip readers couldn't read. I mean, geez, where's this going to end? You know, Absolutely. if you ride a bike, you have to talk like that if you tell a joke because you're afraid somebody reads your lips and the joke is not funny for everyone or, or you know, it's mm -hmm. like, Phew. it's a bit stressful. So writers, yeah, they need, I think, some some more free space for their mind. Mm -hmm. So you're telling me that basically now at the moment your job is tougher as a media, as your job was tough when you were a writer. So basically, for sure it's tougher for cyclists now, but also as a media, it's a super tough job to chase, I mean, to follow the peloton into the France, for example? Uh, if, you, if you want interviews, yes, it's more tricky because everything is so controlled, mm. right? On the other hand, sometimes it's nicely organized, you know? If you go to certain teams, you go, hey, listen, our riders got a strict order after the finish line, get a dry jacket, a drink, and come to the bus and have a shower. Once they had a shower and they have dry and clean clothes on, they will come out, you can ask him. So now there's not too many people or some people at the, at the finish line, but a lot of people go, okay, listen, I need an interview with a rider from UAE or Ineos Grenadiers or Jobo Visma. Then you wait at the team bus and they know that um, the press officer can see him there and he will ask the, the rider to come out again after he had a shower and had a, had a little recovery drink. So in this way, sometimes it's easier, um, but you gotta you, you probably only get one or two interviews a day. If you're standing at the at one team bus, you wait there for the rider to arrive, to shower, to come out, you ask questions. By that time, very likely all the other buses are already gone. So you maybe can get one more bus, one more interview. If you then on a finish line, you can maybe have ten riders riding past you and asking them questions. So. It's it's again it's different. Yeah. Some parts were easier back then, some parts are tougher back then. But following the tour, 
that's tough. You probably cover like 4,000 kilometers, you know, driving to the race, you know, running around trying to get interviews. Uh, then you have to leave before the peloton in order to, to make it on the road, you know, uh, to, to the finish line. So, I mean, since I have been a bike rider, their job is much, much harder. No question Absolutely. at all. <laughs> but also the journalists, they do look tired in the last week of the tour, I have to admit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It makes a lot of sense. Let's get back one second to your life into the peloton for two more questions. And the first one is, I mean, you have been in how many Tour de France? 12, I think? 11? 17. Exactly. 17? Stefano, you're not prepared. 17 Tour de France. You actually has be, have been into the peloton with and together in the same team with a lot of super amazing cyclists i mean really super amazing one in the same team and stuff i just want to ask you a cup actually one thing one thought one uh, story maybe about one guy and actually also was a guy that actually retired pretty soon and everything who actually impressed me personally for his class and also for the kind of riding that he had and then talking about andy schleck is it something that we also we are talking about before? So Andy Schleck was also, I mean, he got into a lot of pressure. Anyways, he, he won one Tour de France, but actually really was there to, uh, I mean, to blow everybody away all the time, but then it never really happened. Do you have any memory or any kind of comment that you can tell me on Andy Schleck? I know that now he has probably the best job in the world. He has a bike shop. So He actually has two bike shops. He uh, <laughs> About a month ago, he opened the second one. Wow. <laughs> Yes, yes, yes. And he is uh, with a Skoda um, at the Tour de France, like for, uh, you know, a VIP guests and, and, and uh, hospitality. He is at the Tour with uh, Skoda. Um, yeah, Andy was so much talent. It was unbelievable. Um, but, you know, genius and insanity come hand in hand uh, with, with Andy how many times you would be at the start line and Andy would go try to keep it secret. But of course in a team bus, it's impossible. He would go, Hey, sport director, how quick do you think you could drive back to the hotel and come back here and be like, Oh, what did you forget this time? Uh, the helmet, the shoes, the numbers. And <laughs> uh, how often did that happen? <laughs> how often did that happen? In the end, I think he actually paid black money to uh, some team member. Hey, you have an entire spare set of me ready and we never say anything to the team that I forget something. You know, I pay you extra money and you don't say anything. And you have extra clothes to save my ass. Yeah, how often that that, that happened? Um, or I would go, you know, uh, some race. Um, I think it was the bus country where sometimes it's bad weather. Mm -hmm. And I would go back to the race car, spot driver's car. Hey, can I have my rain jacket? Uh, no, it's not there. Well, I checked it before the start of this race. Uh, Andy has it. Oh, can I have at least my gloves? Um, Andy has your gloves. Because Andy didn't have a rain bag, right? Every rider has a little, tiny little bag with an extra rain jacket, medium-sized gloves, uh, bigger gloves, extra hat, you know, maybe extra socks, probably an entire set of clothes in case you crash, you rip it apart, you can change. Yeah. And import spare shoes yeah. in case you crash and you break the shoe. So, and Andy wouldn't have his stuff ready. 
And then he would be racing with mine. I'm like, what can I say? He's my captain. You know, he's our third France captain. So I cannot go and yell at him. He's my boss. So I just had to go, all righty then. I guess I'm just going to work with that what I have. Well, crazy. So, but, but Andy also, you cannot go mad at him. He is the nicest yeah. person under the sun, right? He is the nicest young fine gentleman you can ever imagine so you cannot go mad at him you know and then he would laugh at himself go yeah and i know i'm an idiot i'm sorry but i was so cool i needed to reject it you know so you know and he's a great person he's still a close friend of mine and um i'm happy he was in my team for all these years same for andy schleck of course uh, for frankie yeah 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 I mean, this seems like a bit more uh, extrovert than he. I mean, I mean, actually, I follow Frank Schleck in um, in the social media stuff. He has his own Gran Fondo. He does a lot of cool things, and uh, yeah, it seems like they are the best. They were, they still are the best combination as team players and team rider, plus also on the bike and probably also as a personality, right? Yeah. Or oh, another story of uh, the entire family. Go ahead. Um, Johnny Schleck, the father. Yeah. He was a bike rider before as well. And um, back then, we had a race called Criterium International. And uh, they moved it around a few times. At the end, it was um, in the north of France, close to the border of Belgium and Luxembourg, mm -hmm. more or less in the middle of nowhere, of the Ardennes Mountains. So it was hard to get there and hard to get away from there. So then um, we decided, look, you know what? We drive together with the Schleck brothers. I stay at their house uh, Sunday night. And then I fly out from Luxembourg Airport the next day on Monday. Right? So we do that. So then I ended up winning the race. We had a good race. I won a stage. I won the overall. And then we sit at uh, Frank and Andy's house. And then they invite a few friends. They go, hey, let's play a little poker game. Everybody pays whatever, 10 or 20 euros. So, yeah, we play poker. And you know who won the entire uh, tournament? Gabi, their mother. <laughs> so Andy and Frankie's mother won the poker tournament. It was absolutely fantastic. We had so much fun. It's, um, the, I mean, the entire family just lives cycling. Uh, you know, so it's 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 a pretty it's it's pretty great. I have uh, the nicest memories of them too. Yeah, that's great. Uh, please do me a favor. As soon as you see uh, Andy Schleck at the Tour de France, probably you're gonna see him soon. Anyways, give him a hug from uh, from my give him a hug from my side. I mean, I think he was really one of the most talented person I've ever seen on the bike. And as you're saying now, also a kind of super funny and easygoing and nice person to be around. So do it for me. Yep, I will do. <laughs> Thank you. Let's talk about that word record hour. And then we have some duties as well. We, I want to talk with you also about some, uh, um, let's say, tech part and also environmental part. But let's go with that. We are going to try to make fast. But I cannot avoid the topic of the word hour record. Man, how happened in your mind? And we had already talked conversation about Chris Borden, Borman, that you wanted to leave the pro cycling with the word hour record. Chris Boardman, we touched base already. Another thing that comes into my mind, I think that actually probably Fabian Cancellara was talking about that during your team meetings or free time or whatever about the world record quite a bit. But man, the attempt before of the uh, our record was 10 years before, nine years before. And then at a certain point, you took it out from the closet where everybody was leaving it because it's something that takes about suffering. You take it out, you beat the record, you got the new one, and then everybody started pushing it up. So tell me what's, what was the process, and how did you feel into that moment that you were there in Grand Canyon, I think, beating and riding the World Hour record? 
Well, um, lucky for me, they, they did change the rules a little bit mm -hmm. that year. And we, we had Fabian Cancellara already trying. So within the team, we had an expert and he already had some test results, some knowledge I could fall back on. And Fabian somehow lost the interest in it. Um, and then I went to the team and said, um, hey, listen, if Fabian doesn't want to do it, um, I would be volunteering. And then they said, hey, yeah, that's a good idea. Like, um, you know, I had a slow start to my last season. I have to admit I was a little too lazy in training. I didn't train enough, not enough quality in my last season because I had a little little bit just lost the motivation in the last winter for training. You were 43 at that time, right? Yes. Okay. 42, uh, for, uh, 40, 42, I believe. 42. Um, no, 43, correct. 43, because um, it was already uh, the year 2014. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, I had a bad start or a, a slow start to the season. So, I figured maybe I'm not going to do the Tour de France. So I will then, uh, at the first part of the year, I thought I'm not going to qualify for the Tour. So I thought I'm going to use the entire Tour de France for training and preparing. And the first weekend after the Tour, I would do the hour record because then I would have time to, for the media, right? If you do anything in the Tour de France time, nobody pays attention to you, right? So that was the plan. But then I started to become good again. The team selected me for the Tour de France. Yellow jersey um, that year. No, the mountain jersey. The mountain, mountain jersey, jersey. I, I took on the first stage, yeah? Okay. Um, and so um, then I used the races in Utah and uh, the tour of Colorado as altitude training. Went straight to Switzerland, got my new bike, trained there, lived on the track and trained every day twice. You know, short, but a lot of intensity. And yes, managed to beat the hour record. I was super happy. Um, and I was hoping I would at least have it until Christmas, uh, right? But then I think we made it look too sexy. We, we, we became the victim of our own success, right? We had, you know, Eurosport primetime at 7 p.m., best time ever, right? Eurosport told me together with the live stream of the track webpage or the UCI webpage, they told me, I had a hundred million viewers, a hundred million clicks. Maybe not all the time, but but you know that's Super Bowl, that's Formula One status, right? So, and then I had a soundtrack. I had people there. You know, I had I had standing ovations every lap I come past. So it was a super successful event for myself for getting a record, but for the team, for the sponsor, for every brand. Because look at our record. There's no team. There's no other bike. It's just you and your jersey and your bike. So an hour undisturbed view on the products you use. So the, 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 you know, the public relations company went, oh, this is pure gold, right? I mean, one hour on Eurosport, you would probably have to pay $10 million to pay for advert, adverts for one hour. And there you almost get it for free. So that's why all these teams went, hey, we want something of that. We want one hour on Eurosport at the best time. And so it became a super popular. Looking back at it now, I probably should have, after the record, stayed there for another three or four days. You know, just recover, do two or three days easy, and try again and mm. faster. Because I already had the record, so I could have had a more aggressive approach. And I, I'm pretty sure today, 
I would have been maybe at least one lap, maybe two laps, something like 300 to 500 meters quicker, I think. Okay. With the knowledge of I can make it. But back then, I was, you know, it was the day after my uh, 43rd birthday. I said, look, I want to retire. I, I squeezed everything out of me. Uh, honestly, um, every cell of my body was just screaming for mercy and, hey, please retire. Every cell of my body was just done with it. So I couldn't do two more days. But I was happy I could finish like that. Absolutely. I mean, it was an amazing end of it. And as, as you were saying, actually, you made it fun and hype again. Now, I mean, Victor Campana is a world record holder. So anyways, there is somebody with actually, uh, I mean, Alex Doset uh, was the last one attempting it. Somebody, Ellen Van Dijk, did it for uh, the women's side. But still, I think that actually there is a lot of talking. There are a lot of rumors of also probably news of Filippo Ganna who wants to do it. It's something cool. And actually, I have really to say that you were the one put it, putting it back to the good old time and then talking about the Merck's time, the copy time as well as, yeah, also Chris Boardman time and Aubrey time. And also um, what people like about it, or I like about it, it's the simplicity. I mean, there's no excuses. It's just you, one bike, one track, and how much pain you can handle. That's it, you know? And if you have it, if you have it, it's all in glory, it's all yours. And if you don't win, then there's no excuse, there's no team you can blame, there's no tactics, it's just you. So it's the, the ultimate hour of truth, really, it is. Are you planning it to do it again? Me? Yeah, as an amateur. If Brian O'Brien wants to do it again, you can do it again. Well, I uh, actually, every now and then, it pops uh, in my mind. You see? <laughs> that uh, maybe I try when I'm 60 at the uh, Masters category, or I try the two-hour record. I mean... There's no way in hell of course. that I could do 55 or 54 at my age and, you know, eight years to retirement. But maybe the two-hour record, not too many do it, so the level there is lower. Maybe I still have a chance to go for that one. Well, anyway, it's just stupid ideas. Probably not going to happen. I'm going to actually really trying to pull out from you a promise. If you're going to do it, please make it happen and invite me. I would love to be there and make the media part of there just cheering at you when you're swinging by Alrighty, that's a plan that's a plan i love we it we have a deal that's really great so i actually uh, that's the thing actually we have to say thank you that they put us in contact and talking about silka and i want to talk pretty quick with you about some marginal gains as well as some sustainability topics first of all you how long have you been now silka ambassador and why have you I mean, why do you decide to take this path? Because if I have to be completely sincere, you don't look like the classic cyclist or rider that really takes care too much into marginal gains. You are a bit more the concrete rider. But what happened? What were the values that put you together with the Silka people? Um, it's my second year now with Silka and they do high quality products. Absolutely. So I knew, I knew of the products all my career, right? I mean, it's a company with some tradition. And when he contacted me, contacted me and he told me about it, I'm like, see, I'm a person of like a hundred thousand interests, right? Um, um, I like planes, I like birds, you know, I like fishing, I like nature, I like cars, I like motorbikes, you know, I follow MotoGP, you know, it, it, there's a million things I'm interested in. Yeah. Um, I do like a lot of uh, books, for example, as well. Um, 
you know, uh, um, I have an arrow and a bow every now and then I shoot in my backyard, arrow and bow. So there's a million things I'm interested in. Um, and so he told me about it. I'm like, wow, that sounds actually pretty wild. But now that he explains it in a way, it does make sense. So I wanted to try and they convinced me just by results, right? They gave me some products. I tried and said, wow, it actually, it does work. Um, and they like the idea of my saying shut up Lex, moving it into shut up chain, right? Yeah. So that was a perfect connection. Everybody knows me for shut up Lex. So if I go, hey, shut up chain, um, they go, yeah, that makes sense, you know? Um, and uh, yeah, it, it's a good product. They sent me some, I tested them. And yeah, even my wife, I put it on my wife's bike as well. She got a, an electric bike. And we do, often we do bike tours, you know, to the next coffee shop. Like, let's say, like, something like five to ten miles. We have a coffee. The kids are in school. We have a coffee. We watch the water and the birds and the sunlight. And then we uh, ride back home. Or a little getaway time is this, right? Or getaway time. Um, and I put it on her bike. She goes, honey, I can't hear my chain. That is unreal. So, yeah, I, they do good products. And... Now that I get older, every little bit helps. That makes sense. So marginal gaze, not maybe when you were in top of your shape, but now that you are 90% of your shape, a little help is good. Indeed, my friend, indeed. <laughs> because as shocking as it is, the other day I had a, one of these social bike rides and a younger kid asked me, hey, Mr. Folk, what do you think? How much percent of your uh, best shape you are in now? And I'm like, uh, I'm terribly sorry to say, but I probably lost 66.6% of it. And I am at 33.3% left. So two thirds are gone and one third is left, I guess. It hurts to say it. Man, but though, I don't believe you. You run a marathon every second day. You're in a fucking great shape. Sorry. <laughs> well, sorry for the F word. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's it, it it's it's okay. I mean, I'm 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 just turned uh, fifty last year, or, or this year going to be fifty one. I believe for fifty one, I'm in pretty good shape. Absolutely. Actually, to make you laugh, the other day my wife and me we went uh, yeah uh, uh, grocery shopping. I had her carrying the water bottles and the, the milk and all that. And then when we drove home, she goes, "Man, I saw all these women checking on you. They turned their heads after you." I'm like, "After me?" She said, "Yeah." <laughs> I mean, for your age, she goes, you look super fit and, and healthy. You know, uh, now in the summer, you know, your skin has a little bit of a suntan. And she goes, yeah, uh, I think um, at least five or six, uh, they were turning their heads and checking you. <laughs> That's very great. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. Talking about actually a little bit about the shut up chain kind of uh, uh, campaign, actually, that you did. Mm hmm I mean, you are saying that actually you can feel actually also the difference on the lubricant also on uh, really everyday bike. So is this mm -hmm. so much of a factor? And maybe we can actually um, move this conversation, translate this conversation into the, uh, the tires. So actually everything that is inside. So you really think that this little move, I mean, we don't want to make uh, the apology of consumerism, but these products are really good also for the everyday life. Absolutely, they are. <clears throat> um, they got uh, three different options for the chain loop. One, the best option, but it's more effort to put it on. You got to take the chain off, mm. you got to melt the wax, then you dip the chain into the melted wax, and then it's good for three months, and you don't need to touch it or oil it anymore. Um, 
So that works super good. But they have two easier options where you just put them on before the ride. So that, that's a lot easier. It's a little less efficient, but it's super easy to use. And of course, you're talking about clean chain, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. I'm yes. terrible on cleaning my drivetrain. Terrible. Uh, well, yeah, you get dirty hands with it, right? Nah, I need to go and wash my bicycle after probably our after, after our conversation. I need to knock down a bit of work and then I need to go and clean my bike because after the ride of uh, Saturday... It's completely dirty. And my friends told me, we're not going to put your bicycle into our car anymore. So go clean it. I'm going to do it. Um, yeah, I, I have to say, um, shame on you. The bike ride on Saturday and the bike is still dirty. Oh, I'm sorry, Jens. Um, so I must say, um, when I uh, when the, the drive train is not clean and it makes this mm. noise, Drives me. It hurts my soul. It hurts my heart because I can almost feel the grinding at the sprocket, at the cassette, and the chain, and destroying it. Uh, I I don't like. So I try to keep my my bikes pretty proper and clean. I have to say. Um, so and um, yes, you wash your bike straight after your ride. I try. I leave it outside. Um, if it's rainy, leave it outside, go for a shower, come back out and try to wash the bike. And with my six kids, well, five still live at the house. Sometimes the kids, sh little cheeky buggers, they see me washing the bike, they move to their garage, the get their bikes out, without a word, putting it next to my bike and kind of like looking at me, Daddy, once you're already doing it, wash my bike, please. But you don't even say a word, you just like silently put their bike next to mine and disappear um, back into the house. <laughs> uh, I mean, I mean, I would do the same. <laughs> Sorry for yeah. that, Jens. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I guess and I'm an expert, or at least in our family, I'm the expert for bikes. I can't wait to meet you and then bring my bike so you can wash. No, 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 no. I just want to catch <laughs> all your tips on washing my bike perfectly. Let's put it this way. Yeah, I'm, I have done it many times, so I'm pretty quick at it now. I, I'm efficient at it. How long does it take for you to wash your bike properly? Uh, properly, then probably um, 20 minutes, 15. I can do it in like five and a half, you know? Yeah. But um, if you really like uh, take, uh, take take more care, then it takes, yes, 15 to 20 minutes, I guess. But then it's it's really clean. That's perfect. Um, I do want to, I would love to ask you just actually one last thing. And uh, it's about, I mean, it's still Silka, and I know that you have a couple of good thoughts on that, and I want to discuss with you in five, for, for a bit of time, for five minutes. So actually, one of the strongest um, uh, Silka's commitments are to ban completely the, uh, no, the PFAS products. PFAS, I was watching a couple of videos, is this material, chemistry, chemical material that helps things not to have uh, friction, not to stick between each other. And they are super important for lubricants as well. And that's a super great statement because actually this material is pretty, pretty, pretty harsh on the environment. What do you think about that? I'll, let's put it in this other way. How much do you think that us as a cyclist can really do for the environment. Because my take is that I think that all of us, we go around in the world thinking that we are green superhero, that we are doing our job because we are not using cars. I'm not pretty sure because the thing that you are using and the, our clothing kits, our bicycle and stuff can be pretty harsh on the environment. So we are clean, but we can do better. What do you think? Uh, yes, I could agree more. And uh, something, I believe most bike riders are also have a car. And every now and then they drive a car. So um, 
as in my case, I have a car because sometimes I have to drive the kids somewhere. And of course, I use my bike a lot. And um, I must also say, dear bike riders out there, the respect you want to receive from the car drivers, you also have to show towards them. So if you show the middle finger to a driver, that's not a friendly, hello, how are you today? That's a pretty tough gesture. So Or raising your fist and yelling. Uh, so it, it, it is, you know, uh, live and let live. Um, most drivers are, you know, having a bike or all bikers have a car. So think about both sides. How would you feel if you in the car and a bike rider does that or the other way around? So, you know, just a little bit respect for each other would help and get some of the aggression between the cars and the bike riders away. Um, yes. We do good things for environment because we use a bike, but you're right. Um, not too long ago, it was still a standard procedure to use um, diesel, diesel fuel to clean, to decrease the chain. Yeah. And then, of course, people would just do it out on the street, just spray some diesel on the chain because it, it is efficient. It gets the grease off the chain, but it all drips down and gets into the soil. What a disaster. Right. Every time you would wash your bike like that, it's like a little oil tanker exploding somewhere out on the ocean, you know, mm -hmm. and um, it's something crazy. It, it takes, what, 10,000 or 1,000 liters of water to neutralize one drop of oil. It, it's, it's, in, it's, it's a crazy number. You go, it's mind blowing how much time it takes to actually neutralize that drop of oil in the soil. Um, so we could do better there. You know, fortunately, a lot of uh, producers now have some green um, bike cleaning material. Um, and everybody is aware of it now. So we do get better. But yes, we still have to constant improve and um, constantly uh, look for, 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 yes, for better ways to, to make it even easier on the environment. And don't throw away bottles. How often do we still see riders having a bar? I mean, also uh, in, in social rights, weekend rights, and just throwing it out. And you go, well, just put it back in your pocket. I mean, it's not the Tour de France. We're not racing here for any gold medals or world records. It's just a social right. So why don't you just put, put that silver wrapper back in your pocket, right? Absolutely. So there's still a few things. Yeah, absolutely. And I can actually see something that I really like now in the Grand Tours, Tour de France uh, or Giro d'Italia or wherever, there are some points into the race where you can drop all your stuff so somebody will come and collect. That's another good example that the Propeloton is giving to the, the normal user. They are not dropping stuff around on the time, or I mean, on the, on the middle of the road anywhere, but they do it just in these green areas. And that's also something that you, we have to keep as a learning do it because the environment is also ours. And I'm super happy that there are companies like Silka <clears throat> and uh, people uh, like you that are really, they're really stressing on the point. We are cool. We don't use so much fuel, at least chemical fuel, to do our rides and to travel the world. But still, we have a lot of things to do and we don't have to compare with somebody else. We just need to do good by, our, by ourselves. Yeah, correct. And uh, Silka also does with... Um, these uh, sealant uh, liquids, you also go really green there. You know, when you have clinchers, you have a puncture, there's 
some sort of like latex milk in there. They also uh, make sure that these products are easy on the environment. They do, they do really good. They're a really good partner, I have to admit. No, yeah, it uh, makes a lot of sense. So I can ask you just a little, little thing. So this means that actually in talking about um, tires and everything on your bike and wheels on your bike, you are a tubular person, a tube person, or a tubeless person? Whatever comes along, I'm easy. Okay. Um, at racing, I would uh, use the normal tubes you glue on yeah. in races. Yeah. Um, time trials, tubeless, because the tire moves in a better way. And I believe tubeless is um, the future. They're a little harder to get on the rim or off the rim because they have to be airproof. Mm -hmm. Um And in my old uh, cyclocross bike, I actually have a normal uh, um, clincher. Yeah. And that inside uh, tube already has, has five patches on it. I think it's in there for a year probably. It has five patches on it. It still works. So it's good for whatever you want. Uh, it, it all works for me. <laughs> That's super awesome. That's super awesome. Cool, Jans. I would say that I will let you go. You have to drive. You have to go to Munich. We almost made it on time. Do you have anything else that you want to add that we didn't touch base? You want to send, say hi to anybody? You want to give high five to people? What do you want to say? Well, if you ask me like that, I just want to say thank you one more time to all my fans. They have been so loyal to me over the years. They followed me. They put up with my crazy German accent and with my shut up legs. And it's only pain sayings. So, yeah. Just because of you, my fans, I had a chance to shine. You gave me the chance and energy to become the best I can be for you because you gave me all that positive feedback. So from the deepest part of my heart, a huge thank you to all my fans and supporters and the loyal support and love you showed me over yeah, almost 20 years of a career. So thanks one more time to everyone. Well, I would actually then express the voice of your fans saying thank you, Jens, because it's so cool to see such positive energy. Uh, why not approach that you are really, I mean, I, I can believe you and you, I can also personify, re personify you as the why not thing. You like to do the World Hour Record? Why not? You do it. You like to run one marathon a day? Why not? You try to do it. And all this kind of thing. I mean, this positive attitude, it's really example for a lot of us. So I would say thank you for being so much Jans White. Thanks a lot for it. Thank you. <laughs> well, Jans, it was a great, 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 great pleasure. I would say enjoy the Tour de France and we're going to talk soon. Yes, I will enjoy it. And it will be exciting for all of us. It's going to be good. All righty. Thanks for having me. And good luck for the future. And hopefully we meet one day at one of my future adventures. Please give me a shout. I will be there. Cool. We have a deal. Ciao, ciao. Ciao. How do you feel about that? A lot of uh, pro talking, road talking, but a lot of super great adventure. I really loved when uh, Jans talked about putting some good lube on uh, his wife. Yes, his wife chain in order to make it shut up. Shut up chain. Thanks, Silka, and thanks to Tones Amsterdam to make this episode happen. Check them out and check all the statements also about sustainability and uh, 
Yes, the bells. You're gonna you listen about that. You listen on that also in the last episode, right? Yes, the bells are always here with me. Um, yes, Silka. I'm gonna put also down in the description below an amazing. Uh, I think it was a blog post or whatever a statement from Silka about the environment and uh, the chemical element that they're putting in their uh, gears and uh, in their products. It's super super interesting. Thanks a lot for doing that, and I truly believe that these are the kind of statements that company needs to do in order to keep our sport, but especially our planet, in shape. We are all responsible for that. Anything else? Thank you for listening and for thanks, really, please do it. Uh, subscribe, share, and comment and rate this podcast in your podcast platform. And remember, coffee link down below if you want to support me. Drop a couple of coins. Always good if you can do it. And thanks to Komoot, komoot.com slash G, like Greenland, and the code is Broom, in order to get your extra region there and enjoy all the full experience on Komoot and ride some bikes in perfect environment this summer. Summer is beautiful. It was actually an event, at an event last weekend. It was the Octopus Gravel in Andermatt. Amazing people, amazing climbs, and also this one was supported by Komoot. Komoot is really keep our community really, uh, yeah, not only in shape, but well-maintained and happy. Thanks, Komoot, for doing uh, this. And remember, by Kigis, to support the cause of the charity in Berlin, who is teaching women refugees to learn how to ride the bike. Teaches how to learn. I think I'm a bit rusty this morning, just because I was out of uh, this podcast situation for a bit of time. This is not going to happen again, hopefully. So keep yourself posted. Follow me, Calamaro CC or Broomwagon Podcast on the social media, Instagram, basically Instagram, yes. And you will keep yourself up to date on what is going on on the Broomwagon and Calamaro world. I will talk to you soon, in two weeks, I would say. Bye.